Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Isaiah chapter number six. As we just sang and prayed, I do hope that that is your heart today, that we come to God um, needy, desperate, needing to be filled, needing to be um, really re- uh, renewed in our hearts and in our minds. The constant work of God of helping us, uh, lifting us up, drawing us to him. And I want us to look at a passage of scripture that I think would be very good for us to look at this morning. Good for me. Um, Even this morning as I was just working through this and thinking through this and praying, I just uh, my heart is so in need of this passage of scripture. Um, a very intimidating passage of scripture to me, to be totally honest, I am going to give it my absolute best shot, but I promise you, I can't even come close to doing justice to this passage. It's just an overwhelming passage of scripture. Listen to what it says in Isaiah chapter number six in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord. Sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings with two. He covered his face and with two. He covered his feet and with two. He flew and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds moved or shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And here's why he said this, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. I want to stop right there. We'll continue a little further than that this morning as we go. But I want us to look at that last phrase. As Isaiah sees something that's overwhelming to him. And then he, he, he comes to a point where he is a broken, I mean an overwhelmingly broken man. It's what happens when your eyes see God. And, um, but he says, this is what ha- he says, it's because my eyes have seen the king. What happens to a person when their eyes see the king? What's going to happen to me when my eyes see the king? You don't walk away the same. So my prayer is that we would see him today. That uh, he would be high and lifted up in our minds and in our understanding. Uh, can, we look at, can we look to the Lord right now and pray and ask him to help us? Father, we come to you. Lord, we are needy. Um, Please help us. Lord, take your word, plant it deep, work in us, we pray for your glory. Lord, we're your church. Um, Lord, we're we're your sheep. Lord, we're the sheep of your pasture. So God, would you lead us beside still waters? Would you feed us? Would you restore our souls? Um, God, meet with us this morning, we pray. We commit ourselves to you in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever been in a situation where... You were, um, you were somewhere and, and, and it's just like you, it, it, it was big. It was too big. You were 
kind of taken back by the, the feeling of how small you are. I'll never forget the first time I stood on the south rim of the Grand Canyon. I had heard it was a pretty big hole, you know, a little bigger than I had thought that it was. Um, just that feeling of, wow, and you just feel so small. I'll never forget when I was a, a little kid, my, my dad wanted to go to Yellowstone National Park. He had talked about it and talked about it. And I, I think I was like nine years old or something. We jumped into the family station wagon. We had this 1979 gray station wagon. It only broke down twice on the way out. That was pretty good. Um, but anyway, we made it. We made it. And I remember, I, I obviously didn't appreciate it as much as he probably wanted me to. I was asleep in the back seat. And he woke me up. He said, hey, Aaron, look out the window. And I remember, I remember, um, uh, and I'd seen the mountains from afar, but, but all of a sudden, I don't know what roads we had taken, but we were right up in the Grand Tetons. And I don't know where we were, but I remember when he told me I had to like scooch my little head up against the window to look straight up to see the, the top of this cliff that we were right up against. And I remember it just overwhelming me. I, I was it was, I was, I was, I was afraid. I mean, we have, well, I grew up in North, in North Carolina and we have some great little bumps we call the Appalachian mountains, but they're a little different than your mountains out here. And I remember it just, it was just so overwhelming. Um, I felt so small folks. If you can multiply that by a billion and that's where you have Isaiah as he is standing before the King of Kings and the Lord of of lords you see let me tell you something we can't stand before god i uh, moses said he wanted to see god god said actually moses you can't handle seeing me yet no man can see me and live um i'll show you just a little bit of my glory and then remember moses came down off the mountain and he glowed um you can't we can't handle seeing god And then all of a sudden, here we have a situation where Isaiah is standing before the throne of the king of kings. And it is overwhelming to him. And I want us just to look at this. I want us to see what what does happen to a man and and, and a woman. What happens to us when when we see this king? First of all, I want us to, verse number one kind of sets the stage. But I want us to see this, that when, when when we see him. When we really understand who he is and see him, first of all, we're convinced that he's in control. But we're also, we understand that we're not in control. Folks, did you know that it's a good thing that me and you aren't in control? It's really a good thing. We would mess everything up. But we can rest because he's in control. Let's look at the context here uh, and, or just tell him the, the story here and uh, giving what's going on. In verse number six, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Now, who's King Uzziah and what's going on here? Well, King Uzziah had been the king for a long time. Fifty years he had been king. Now, you have to understand in, in, the, in this time, you had the time of kings. You had absolute total monarch, monarchies. And that's not how we have it today. Um, in our balance of power, we have the legislative, the executive, the judicial branches. And no one man has this much power. And it's a good thing. We're thankful for that. Um, uh, A a, a king, I mean, he had absolute power. If he he looked at your head and and decided he didn't like the looks of your head, he could say off with your head. And your head went rolling, folks. I mean, he had absolute power. He would reign for as long as he lived. Um, We... uh, 
Uh, we have a president for four years. He may be reelected and we have him for eight. But and I say this respectfully of the of the position, but it, it is a good thing in our government that we don't have any one person with total with 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 that kind of power any more than eight years. We have a balance in our government. That's not what they had here. A king had absolute power for as long as he lived. Isaiah was most likely, we understand, a middle-aged man. And so the only king who he had ever known his entire life was King Uzziah. But King Uzziah is dead. Um, Now... King Uzziah had actually been a good king, not a perfect king. He had made mistakes, but he had humbled himself. He's he's listed among those who he, he was listed among those who who did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. So he had been a pretty good king, but he's dead. So who's going to be the next king? What's he going to be like? Is he going to be a good king? Um, nobody knew. Now they did know who the next king was going to be because it was King Uzziah's son. And King Uzziah's son had been co-reigning with him for for, for a a short time because King Uzziah had been sick. But still, um, King Uzziah was very influential. And now that he was dead, what's his son going to be like? Is he going to be a good king? Is he going to be a gentle king? Is he going to take our children and make them slaves? He could if he wanted to. Folks, if if I can just help you with this. In this transition time in the nation of Israel, there was massive unrest. We understand what it's like in the midst of a, an election year. Who's going to win? What's it going to be like? If you can multiply that by, I'm not sure how many that would have been the atmosphere on the national level among the people of God, the year that King Uzziah died. And folks, let me tell you something. It was right at that time that Isaiah sees who's really on the throne. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who is in control of everything, the one who sits on the throne of eternity. I love the picture that it gives. It says that his train fills the temple. The train off of a off of a king's robe, a king would walk around and he would have this long train that came off of his robe and it signified a long reign. You remember back in the old movies, maybe long live the king. It would signify that he would have a long reign. And and so they would have this big, long train coming off their off their robe. Listen to the train that comes off of the king of kings and the Lord of Lords robe. Look what it says. It says that it filled the temple. What does that mean? I mean, I don't know. I sort of think that it means that it apparently filled the temple. I I don't know if it just kind of wrapped back and forth. I don't know if it kind of, you know, filled the entire floor space or it started to mount up. There was, there was a point being made at King Uzziah, 50 years, whoop-de-doo. There is a king who sits on the throne forever and he is the one who is in control. I got a question for you. Are you thankful that the people in Washington aren't really the ones in control? Um, folks, we have a king who's in control. Now, here's, here's what I want you to understand. When are we convinced that he's in control? I believe it's when our eyes behold him. Now, we're gonna, not going to see him in a vision. He doesn't come to us in visions like he came to Isaiah. But folks, let me tell you something. This book represents that we can see him. Anytime we want to. 
And we can, in this book, in our understanding of what God gives to us in His Word, we can understand His sovereignty in the midst of our lives. When our eyes behold Him, we begin to rest because He's in control. When our eyes do not behold Him, can I tell you what we have a tendency to do? Worry. Control. Manipulate. Folks, when we do not realize He's in control, we try to be in control. And I don't know about your life, but I've found that when I try to be in control of my life, I tend to mess things up. Folks, when our eyes behold Him, we can rest in Him. Second of all, when our eyes behold Him, you will not only be, see that He's in control and we're not, but also you'll begin to see that He's holy and we're not. Listen to where this goes. Verse number 2, Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. And with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now folks, what's going on in this vision? He sees the King high and lifted up. His train of his robe fills the temple. And then it says that all of a sudden these beings show up called the seraphim. Who are the seraphim? We don't know a whole, whole lot about them from the Bible. This is one of the texts where we know the most about them. That their names themselves really give us kind of the understanding that apparently they have something to do with fire. Kind of like if there may be an angel that's on fire. They're definitely some, they're an angel. Um, an angel that's on fire. They apparently, according to this text, have six wings. Can I tell you something about a, uh, one of the seraphim? Um, I've never seen any such. I've never seen such a thing. I've never seen any such of a being. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you haven't either. Um, let, let me just say something. If we were to encounter one of the seraphim, we probably would not know how to handle it. If one of the seraphim came and joined us this morning and started walking down the center aisle on fire, six wings. We, 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 we might get a little uncomfortable in here. I don't know. You know, we might start crawling over each other trying to get out of here. We probably couldn't handle being in the presence of one of these beings. Listen to this. These seraphim cannot handle being in the presence of the king. Look at what it says. They have six wings, but with two of their wings, they cover their faces. They won't even look at him. With two of their wings, they cover their feet. That's a sign of reverence and humility. Me and you couldn't handle the presence of one of the seraphim. The seraphim, though, can't handle the presence of this king because he is so overwhelming. And with their mouth, they tell us why. They cry one to another. It's because he is holy, holy, holy. What does it mean that God is holy? The Bible tells us a whole lot of things about God. The Bible is full of language telling us that He's full of love, He's full of mercy, He's full of grace, that He's omniscient, all-knowing, that He's all-powerful. All kinds of things the Bible tells us about God as it describes Him. But did you know that more than the Bible says anything else about God, the Bible tells us that He's holy? What does it mean, the word holy? It's a word that actually describes and talks about the distinctness of who God is as opposed to everything else. Especially, from our understanding, as opposed to who we are. Now, 
there's a tendency for us then to think about his sinlessness and his purity. And I think that's very, very appropriate. But it's a word that talks about and deals with the distinctness of who God is. And because he is holy and we are not, the book of Habakkuk, the prophet says, God, your eyes are too pure to behold evil. God can't even look upon it. Have you ever seen something that was so disgusting to you that you, you said, I'm not going to stand here. I'll never forget one time I was hunting. I'm a, I love to hunt. Now, I hunt back east where um, we don't have these giants that you people hunt out here. You know, I, I hunt white-tailed deer. You know, you probably, they look like dogs to you. But anyway, uh, I was hunting at one point on this, uh, this farm that we had permission to hunt. It's actually a big pig farm. We weren't hunting pigs. But oh, um, on this side, though, there was fields and, and corn and beans and me, I was there hunting, and I, uh, I was just a teenager, and um, I, I didn't see any deer that morning. As I was coming back out of the woods, heading to my, to my vehicle, I come up to this huge hole, deep hole, been dug out, deep hole. The closer I got to it, the deeper I realized it was, because I couldn't see the bottom until I get right up to it. It was probably 20 to 25, I would say, dead, rotten pigs from the pig farm. They were in all different, you know... Stages of decomposition. Sorry, it was disgusting. I had to kind of take a double take because the ground was moving. I couldn't tell what it was at first, but it was just the, the swarm of flies and maggots. And it was just, it, ladies, I'm so sorry. It was, it was disgusting, all right? Grossest thing I've ever seen in my life, I'd say. And, and for some reason, I never smelled it the whole time. If I'd smelled it, I wouldn't have gone over there. But I got there. The wind was kind of blowing the smell away from me, I guess. But I saw it and I smelled it at the exact same time. It was a problem. Folks, I got away from that hole as fast as I could. I've never been back, never planning on going back. I hated what was in that hole. I'm not going to stand there and allow it to stay in my presence. I'm sorry. Tiny representation of God and His holiness and man and His sinfulness. He will not, my friend, He cannot allow sin in His presence because He is holy, holy, holy. And the whole earth is full of His glory. And Isaiah is beholding this and is fully understanding that God is holy and that He is not. Would you look at what happens next? In verse number 4, there seems to be like an earthquake. You know, this vision that he has is getting, you know, kind of crazy, I guess you could say. Uh, the, 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 like an earthquake, the... the, the Post of the, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Look at his response, verse 5. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And here's why he was convinced of this for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Folks, Isaiah, upon seeing that God was sovereign and in control, Upon seeing that God was holy and pure and sinless, Isaiah all of a sudden realizes how overwhelmingly not holy he is. He says, woe is me. What is a woe? Um, it's, it's, it's not a curse, but it, it is an announcement of someone standing condemned. Isaiah and other of the prophets announced woes. They said, woe. To, to you false prophets, you stand condemned. Jesus Christ announced woes upon the Pharisees. You stand condemned. 
Folks, here you have an upstanding, good, highly educated, from perhaps a leading family man named Isaiah, a good man. But when he stands before this king and he sees him holy, he says, woe is me. I stand condemned. Because he knew that he had no business in the presence of this king because he was holy. And he says, why? He says, for I am lost. The word lost um, in the King James, it says, for I am undone. Here we say it's the word lost. We find this word translated elsewhere in the Old Testament. It's, it's, we find it translated uh, to destroy or to be destroyed. I personally think that Isaiah is in light of what he is seeing. He is, he is fully convinced that he is in big trouble. Perhaps going to be destroyed. And he says, why? He says, because I'm unclean. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Folks, the terminology of being unclean, if you go back into the Old Testament, let me just say this. No good, upstanding Jewish man would ever consider himself unclean unless he had been thoroughly convinced that he's unclean. But let me tell you what happens to a man or a woman when his eyes behold this king. You realize that he's holy and we are not. My friend, have you come to the place where you have seen who he is and you realize that we are unworthy to be in his presence? We are unclean. Folks, that is what happens to a man when his eyes see the king. I believe Isaiah was fully anticipating not making it past this scene. And I want you to look at what happens next because, my friend, what happens next um, is worst case scenario for Isaiah. Look at the first phrase of verse number six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. Now, just stop right there. What do you think is going through his mind now? Here it comes. Angel on fire, six wings coming right at him. He's already said it with his own mouth. I am guilty. I am unclean. I stand condemned. And then here comes this angel on fire, six wings coming right at him. What do you think is going through his mind? You know, hasta la vista. I mean, here we go. But then look at what happens. You know this story. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from off the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Check it out. And your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Folks, what just happened? Instead of being destroyed, this angel that's coming right at him has a coal that he's taken with tongs from off the altar. And he comes to Isaiah. He touches it to his mouth. And he says, Isaiah, your sins are gone. What just happened? I mean, how did this happen? Okay, we're, we're, we're dealing with the word holy. 
We're dealing with a king who is holy. With our understanding of the word, here's the scenario. We have a holy God and we have a sinful man by his own admission standing right in front of him. He's got to be destroyed in order for God to be just. A sinful man can't be in his presence. We understand this. God has told us this over and over and over again as he has described to us and explained to us who he is. And here we have the worst case scenario for any man to find himself in. A sinner who's standing before a holy God. He must be destroyed. I mean, what's the, I mean, how does this happen? I mean, does God just kind of sweep it under the rug? Does God just kind of say, ah, let's give him another chance? What if I was, what if I was a, a judge in a court of law? We're all present. Here comes the guilty party coming down the aisle. He still has the blood of his victim on his hands. He still has the murder weapon in his hands. And then, and then, uh, what if I just said as a, as a judge, I said, hey, folks, why don't we just give him another chance? He's not even pleading his innocence. He's, he knows he's guilty. He admits that he's guilty. Is it okay for me? Am I a just judge if I say, hey, what do you say, folks? Let's just sweep it under the rug. Why don't we give him another chance? Is that justice? We all know it's not. The guilty party must pay. How come Isaiah doesn't pay? How can God be truly holy and Isaiah is not destroyed? Folks, can I tell you who this king is? Let me tell you something about this king. You know what this king does? This king actually comes off of this throne. This king actually comes to this earth and dwells among us. This king actually took Isaiah's sin and he's the one who atoned for it. This king did for Isaiah what Isaiah couldn't do for himself. This king did for me and you what me and you couldn't do for ourselves. He came to live the life we're supposed to live but we haven't. He came to die the death we deserve to die. He came to this earth. Who is this king? If you fast forward to the New Testament in the book of John, when John is talking about Jesus Christ, do you know what John says? As he's talking about Jesus, he says, this is who Isaiah saw talking about Isaiah chapter 6. Folks, this is none other than Jesus Christ himself on this throne. High and lifted up. Holy, holy, holy. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the King of kings. Folks, this is a beautiful story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this is Isaiah, to understand, representative I don't think this was actually Isaiah's moment of salvation. This is God explaining to Isaiah, he himself, as well as the people who he represented as a prophet. And how that God was, and we are looking at the book that introduces the gospel as much, or helps us understand the gospel in the Old Testament as as much as any book does. He was explaining to Isaiah how that there was going to come a king who who was going to come to this earth, God himself, to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And he was going to cover Isaiah's sins. He was going to cover Israel's sins. He's going to cover our sins so that we could be saved. But this is what happens to a person whose eyes behold the king. And here's the problem. I find that many, many people... 
their eyes never behold Him. They never see Him as holy. So as, as a return, they never see themselves as sinful. My friend, we need God. We need God to see. We need God to help us understand. My friend, this is what happens when a person's eyes behold the king. Let me just quickly show you what happens next. All of a sudden, the smoke clears and Isaiah in verse number 8 is beholding a pretty divine conversation. As God says in verse number 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Now, folks, this isn't God. I believe this is God inside of the triune God as he uses a plural here. I don't think he's talking to the seraphim. I don't think he's talking to Isaiah. I think he says, who will we send? Who will go for us? And I think this is a kind gift for Isaiah because this isn't God wringing his hands going, what are we going to do? Who's going to go for us? Like he doesn't know. But I think God allows Isaiah just after having understood the pardon and the redemption of God's plan for his sin. God allows Isaiah to stand in his presence and hear this conversation. Who are we going to send? Who's going to go for us? And it's almost like you can sort of hear crickets, like Isaiah's looking around. He's the only one there. All Isaiah knows is he should have just been destroyed, but instead he was rescued. Folks, let me tell you the the heartbeat of a person who gets saved, who truly turns to Christ and understands what God has done for them. There's an understanding that, God, I'm going to live for you. God, I I don't own myself anymore. I got saved when I was 21 years old, going to a state school. I'd run from God. I grew up in church, but then I ran from God. I wanted nothing to do with it. When I got saved at 21 years old, there was an overwhelming truth that gripped me and it's never let go of me. And it is this, that I don't belong to me anymore. And we understand this. It makes sense to us in our logic that if Christ would die for us, that we ought to live for him. But I don't know about you, but in my everyday experience of life, I find that it's so hard sometimes for me to live for him as I ought. You know why? Because I still kind of want to be the king on my own throne. But when my eyes behold him every day of my life, I will see that he's worthy. I'll see that he's in control and I don't have to worry, control and manipulate myself. That he's holy and that I am not, but that his mercy and grace covers my sin, saves me. And that, folks, I need to live for him. I need to live for him every day of my life. You know, just just real quick, we've got to be done, but just a really quick little illustration. I'll never forget taking my son. My son for a... Uh, a little daddy date to McDonald's. And um, uh, we, 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 had, we were, uh, it was a breakfast date. We went to McDonald's. I'm a big spender. Anyway, on the way back, he jumps in the back seat. This was a few years ago when my son Asher was probably four years old, five, I don't know. Um, and, and he said, hey, Dad, can I watch a cartoon back in the back seat on the way back? I said, sure, son. He popped on the DVD. It was Tom and Jerry. He's watching the back seat as we get to the church, right as we're pulling into the, into the parking lot. That episode was ending and another one's opening. He goes, Dad, can we watch one more? I said, sure, buddy. Matter of fact, I'll jump back there and watch it with you. It was a classic, illust- it was a classic episode of Tom and Jerry. Remember the, the, the bulldog? All right, the bulldog's there. Just as the scene opens, the bulldog has just gotten caught by the dog catcher and thrown into the truck, right? 
Um, and it's, it's like a jail cell. You know, he's holding on to the bars. He's looking, well, here comes little Jerry, the mouse. He's walking by. He says, hey, little buddy, would you get me out of here, man? I'll do anything. Would you get me out of here? Man, Jerry jumps up there. He pops the lock. The door swings open right as the truck drives away. The bulldog jumps out. He picks little Jerry up and he says, I'll do anything for you. You know what didn't happen? My four-year-old didn't look at me and say, Huh, Dad, I wonder why the bulldog said that to Jerry. You know why? Because it made sense to a four-year-old that if somebody rescues you, you live for them with everything that you've got because they're worthy. My friend, we have a king who is worthy. He has done everything for us. He is sovereign and in control. He is holy, but he is forgiving at the expense of himself. But all of this comes to light when our eyes behold him. If our eyes do not behold him, my friend, we will get it all wrong. May God help us. May God help all of us.